Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies. Produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. And for the 2022-23 academic year, an American Council on Education Fellow at Bryn Mawr College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with engaged and innovative teachers of global politics. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity through conversations that connect experts across the subdisciplines of politics and political science into a community of teachers. What we can share with each other about the strategies and tactics of pedagogy are broader and deeper than the institutional, disciplinary, and geographic differences that divide us in other contexts. Today's conversation is with Dr. Charity Butcher, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and Director of the School of Conflict Management, Peacebuilding and Development at Kennesaw State University in Georgia in the United States. And Dr. Alistair Blair, Associate Pro Vice Chancellor Academic at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK. Alistair is also a National Teaching Fellow, Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy and holds a Jean Monnet Chair in International Relations. Charity is Editor-in-Chief and Alistair Lead Editor at the Journal of Political Science Education, which is published under the auspices of the American Political Science Association. Our conversation explores the concept of scholarship, teaching, and learning as a systematic and rigorous exploration of the mechanisms of successful pedagogy. How JPSE and publications like it promote both the wisdom of particular teacher scholars, the value of pedagogy scholarship more generally and suggestions for how to improve the chances that a submission to JPSE will be accepted for publication. Charity Butcher and Alistair Blair, thank you so much for joining me here on this episode of The Teaching Curve. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the first question I always ask to the guests is about the people who make us teachers, and those are our students. So Charity, if you could just tell us a little bit about the students at the institution where you are, and that will give us a little bit of an idea about your context. Sure, so I teach undergraduate and graduate students, both masters and PhD students at our university. I actually teach in the first PhD program at our university ever. It was the first uh, program that we had um, at that level. Uh, so we are now have many more. We're in our two university recently only. Uh, our students are um, increasingly traditional students. Historically, we've had a lot of not what might be termed as non-traditional students, uh, but increasingly we have a, a more kind of 18, 22 range, 25 range students um, and a very diverse student population um, in the metro Atlanta area. And I think our our student population reflects the diversity of the area that we are in. And our graduate programs have a lot of diversity as well. Our PhD program that I teach in is about 50% international. Uh, about 50% of the students are international in that program. So um, we just have, we have a very diverse and broad student population as we increasingly add more graduate programs to kind of keep up with our R2 status. Um, so that gives you a little bit of an idea of what, what kind of students. And we offer a lot of online and face-to-face -face classes and to accommodate our students who actually probably the majority of work 
uh, at least part-time, if not full-time. Mm. And so the online format really helps provide some flexibility for students who are juggling a lot of a lot of things in addition to their studies. Alistair, what about you? I work at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK, and De Montfort is a it's what we call like a modern university, although um, it's been going in various stages for over 150 years, but its primary focus is on widening participation. Um, it's got a lot, a lot of students from the local area, but also quite a lot of students uh, internationally and uh, uh, from elsewhere in the UK. Um, very diverse. Our city is one of the most ethnically diverse in, in the United Kingdom. Um, we also have overseas campuses in Dubai, and Kazakhstan, and partnerships with many um, other uh, universities in other parts of the world. Um, university, I would say, is highly committed to uh, a new strategy called an empowering university, um, both for our students and for our staff. Um, and really, what we're, I suppose, trying to provide um, great learning opportunities for students who um, you know, don't necessarily have family who have previously been to university, and also who may um, uh, be juggling other other commitments and demands. Um, I'm involved in some undergraduate and postgraduate teaching at the university, and I also have some leadership area broadly in terms of our educational provision um, across the university. That's fantastic. So it, it sounds like both of your institutions, while committed to scholarly endeavors, would reward you spending time on improving teaching. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I would say that's definitely the case. And uh, scholarship of teaching and learning is viewed as equivalent to other types of research at the university. And, and it's really, uh, there are a lot of resources to help faculty who are interested in pursuing that type of research, um, particularly through our Center for excellence in teaching and learning. So there's a lot of, you know, resources to help faculty um, really focus on improving teaching and um, allowing them to do research uh, to help do that as well. Yeah, pretty similar, uh, really. Um, uh, teaching as a promotion pathway has an equivalence to research at our university, so people can go all the way through to full professor on teaching and learning and um, we very much encourage that um, it's also an important um, promotion opportunity that reflects a, a broader group of colleagues um, and often that's important from a diversity perspective as well um, and also we recognize teaching through various sort of awards the university teacher fellowships we provide some uh, scholarship uh, funding for people to do research and teaching um, and uh, we also have uh, comments in this area as well so it's, it's really it's important, particularly in the United Kingdom context, um, because it is also a key metric in terms of how we are graded as universities. Um, and that also has an impact on things like league tables. Um, so we take it seriously, we take it seriously in terms of student feedback, and also we take it seriously in terms of our obligations as a sort of a public body. You are the part of the editorial team, the leadership of the editorial team for the Journal of Political Science Education. And You've been using a term that uh, I think, uh, well, in my estimation, most of the people who would tune into this podcast would probably know what it means, but there's other people who might stumble across it late at night trying to find some way to put themselves to sleep that would come across this term SOTL or Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Can you describe a little bit about what that is and how it is 
uh, in some ways, a subset of, of writing about teaching? Uh, so in my view, I think, you know, there are different types of writing about teaching. Some are more um, reflective and may present uh, your experiences in a class. And those are, are certainly extremely valuable. And for me, social research basically takes the methods that we use in our in our normal or our normal substantive research that we do outside of that, what we went to grad school to do, right? Takes the methods we learned there and that we apply in those areas and applies it to the study of pedagogy and, and to the study of teaching. And so that, that may be quantitative methods. It may be qualitative. Um, it could be a case study that's very well written and thought out and, and rigorous in, in some way, really providing some very explicit instructions. Um, of what to do. But I think ultimately there's some evaluative element to most scholarship of teaching and learning, where you're you're really looking at these teaching interventions um, and, and thinking about how do they impact student outcomes and student learning? Are they effective in what they do? And so um, that kind of additional element, I think, is where we, we start to move away from other types of writing on teaching and pedagogy and get more into the scholarship of teaching and learning. Yeah, I mean, I would basically, you know, say exactly the same, um, but for the benefit of the podcast, we'll say a few more words then. <laughs> I think that um, in both of our views, we're, we're, we hold, I think, the same same view on this, which is that what we're also saying is what's, what are our colleagues' contributions in this area and how does that build on a body of literature and then you like help to contribute to the field um and therefore what people might might be known for or, or help to contribute to now that could be about simulations it could be about how people are maybe more engaged in um civic engagement whatever but it's about you know, what is your contribution to that more than just the act of doing it and i think mm. that then is also about the as charity said the methodological approaches which themselves could be a contribution in themselves, but it's trying to build the field into, I think, a more rigorous, um, you know, substantive body of, of work that we would see as something that people um, will be named for and claim and make a claim for um, as well. And we can see that as a body of literature, just as you might see it in terms of studying German politics or French politics or security studies or et cetera. And within, I think, all of this we will see and do see, you know, work, important work on, on many kind of subfields within it. So, but it's something that, which is more than just a class test or, um, and it's something that's also, I think for us also about trying to sort of see where work is beyond the institution and maybe, you know, trying to forge partnerships between institutions. So you know, a serious body of work, but also one that fundamentally um, contributes to our knowledge of how we teach in the classroom. Alistair, what do you think is some of the tips that you would say are helpful to authors who are thinking about submitting something to the journal where you could maybe short circuit some of the review process if they knew this ahead of time? What what do you wish that they knew? Wow. Um, I mean, first of all, I'd say that what we've tried to do at recent conferences is provide some presentations on this and we're committed to doing that to, to inform potential authors. I think what I would say is that colleagues have to think about their, you know, what they've written and, and, and what they're trying to say. 
and how it fits in to what has already been written and what is new about it. And if it is just saying exactly the same as something we've already, already been covered, it's probably less likely to be um, published, I would say, because mm -hmm. it, it may go through, uh, or it may not go through what we call uh, initial desk um, review. Um, but you've got to think about what is the contribution you're trying to make. I think also what is, is helpful is for, first of all, people to present it in the journal layout, the style, all that type of thing. Think about the journal, the page length. Uh, if it's too long, then it's, it's unlikely to go through initial uh, review by the editors. If it's too short, it's unlikely to go through. So just thinking about the page and you know, a decent cover note, which indicates what you'd see as being the contribution to the journal, how it might fit into work that has already been covered in the journal or not been covered and how it fits into the debates and why you think it has been a timely publication, I think would be quite helpful. Um, so providing some of those things, which you know, not everyone does, you know, in terms of a detailed cover note, in terms of you know why you think it's worthy of this journal, etc., and also how it speaks to the aims of the journal. And in uh, you know the recent issue of the journal, we've set out an editorial statement where we've tried to clarify some of those things, and you mm. know, for people to sort of look at that, and therefore to have a sense of the direction of travel. But but. It is more than just, I think, reporting something you did in your classroom as an experiment um, um, and say this. And then one of the challenges there is not overclaiming those experiments and thinking, you know, it's you know, 10 students, 20 students or whatever, and therefore everyone in the world who teaches political science should do this, but just thinking about the pitch of, of things. Yeah, and I would add to that that, um... You know, increasingly, I think, as we're working on on scholarship and teaching and learning that we need to be cognizant of ethical considerations and especially in the in the US. Um, if you're at or in other places where you're at an institution that has an institutional review board that you're making sure that you have appropriate um, ethical approval mm. for the work that you're doing, uh, especially since a, most of these articles, not always. Um, but a, a lot of time, um, you know, you do ha you are working with human subjects whenever you're doing this kind of research. And so at, at, at minimum, you need exempt approval from your university. Typically, this would also include informed consent uh, for students that are participating hmm. um, or whatever kind of ethical procedure your university would have if you're not in the U.S. and don't have a formalized IRB process. Many institutions have a process for ethical approval or a statement of how research should be uh, conducted if you're working with human subjects. And so, and if not, APSA does have a statement as well. And so thinking about how, or International Studies Association, thinking about how you can, you can make sure that you're protecting the individuals that you're looking at in your research. I mean, most of this is very low stakes, very low um, you know, low risk types mm -hmm. of research, uh, but still making sure that we're following those appropriate procedures for ethical research, uh, I think is important. And so we're really starting to pay a lot of attention to that. And if there are articles that, you know, kind of should have received ethical approval and didn't, we, we, we are likely not moving forward with those articles. So that's something we would like authors to know now that, you know, Typically, this approval uh, from most institutions is a pre-approval that you need to get it before you conduct the research. And it's really hard sometimes 
um, to get it afterwards. And so if you, being thoughtful about you want to pursue uh, a project, which we highly encourage everybody to think about doing, uh, but making sure that you're building in enough time to get that kind of level of approval that you might need from your institution or that you've looked up the ethical guidelines at your institution and make sure that you're following those. So um, we know that when people don't have that approval, it doesn't mean that they didn't, that they're not doing ethical research, but that we just want to see that that, that process has been followed. So we've become a little more uh, stringent on those, on those guidelines um, and moving forward with pieces. So I think that's something important that people should know when they're submitting to the journal that, you know, you're going to need to put a footnote that tells us um, kind of what your ethical research procedures were for dealing with human subjects. Well, it's really interesting to me because as you're talking about systematizing the way that we approach learning ourselves about teaching, you're saying this can't be just something, uh, it's very unlikely that you would publish an article about something that occurred to somebody in the middle of a semester, like, hey, maybe I could do something with this, that there's a structure to the research into teaching that's very similar in many ways to coming up with a structure for you of how you would go about doing research on topical areas in political science or global politics. Yeah, exactly. And I think those types of ideas like, wow, I had this really cool idea in the middle are great for other kinds of outlets. Like mm. write a blog post about that. There are really cool places that you can publish blog posts. I've done a few with exactly that kind of, oh, I'm doing something totally different. I want to write about that. Um, that probably isn't quite up to a, a scholarship of teaching and learning piece, but it's still really interesting. And I want mm. people to see that. I um, mean, I think it can have some impact. Um, so I think there are outlets. I know that uh, lots of different, you know, or APSA has some outlets, PS Now. Um, there's an active learning blog, uh, in, active learning in, in, in political science, I think, uh, blog that you can that you can submit to. So there's lots of outlets for those types of things uh, because I think it's important. And then those can also generate ideas for the next time you teach that class, think about how can you systematize that and, and get a little more data out of it or get a little more feedback from students in a way that's um, a little bit more systematic. So certainly that's kind of maybe the beginning of the process of like, wow, this is really cool. Next time I'm going to try to figure out, you know, maybe do a pre and post test or do something that's going to help. Maybe I can use this in multiple classes or do an experimental design mm -hmm. where I see how it works in one class versus another or join with a colleague at another university and we can test this in different types of settings and see how it works differently. So thinking more broadly and, and systematically about how you can really delve into that research and delve mm. into that pedagogical approach and, and, and help us learn more about moving forward, right? So again, as Alistair said, really contributing to a growing body of literature. Yeah, and we're also keen to have a, a wider uh, geographical diversity of submissions, um, not just uh, you know, not just in, in North America, we've already widened the editorial board uh, in, in, the, in the journal Clearly, I'm from the United Kingdom, uh, another edge from, from the UK. We're keen to, to have uh, submissions, but also uh, to support those submissions as they come to us. And, you know, we recognize we might have to work with, with scholars to, to support them um, from wherever they are. Um, mm -hmm. But we're also bound by peer review, of course. Any last ideas? Any last thoughts you want to throw in? 
where the publications in this area have got room for further work um, is that clearly um, Charlton and myself we're, we're sitting a few thousand miles apart, um, but technology enables this to happen um, in terms of both the the email exchanges and also the, what we're doing through Zoom. But I think there's also scope for um, therefore you know teaching experiments that sit within and between different institutions, um, and that would be interesting in terms of both I think providing opportunities for our students in terms of virtual mobility, um, but also enriching the curriculum, but also getting a sense of how do we test something in different settings. And mm. you know, that in, its, in itself is somewhat mirrors what you might find in the other side of political, you know, in the political science sort of you know, re research field on um, you know, or security studies or whatever, where you'd have a research grant and it would involve a number of different people working on it. So mm. um, I don't think teaching and learning should be any different in that sense. Um, um, but and that, of course, is, is important in how we might seek funding and how we might try to influence um, governments and political parties in terms of their views. And, you know, as educators and particularly in political science educators, we have an important role here and um, sometimes challenging um, views which uh, increasingly take the mainstream. Uh, and that can be dangerous. Um, you know, the journal is not there to save democracy, but I think it is there to play an important role in educating academics and also mm. providing an important voice that can lead into policymakers. Yeah, I agree. And also expanding how we approach methodologically these questions. So, you know, experimental designs, for example, some people do those in political science, but I think there's a lot more we can learn from that. And ed the education field seems to be a, a an area that's ripe for this kind of research. And so I think we could really learn a lot. Um, and I, I'm saying that as someone who hasn't necessarily done this myself, but I think there's a lot of, of room for experimental designs and pedagogical research and that expanding the scope um, and uh, expanding the institutions that are participating or collaborating on a project makes that a little bit easier, um, especially if you're teaching something really specialized that you may not offer very often at your university. It makes this kind of design very difficult. Um, but one way that you can do that is expanding out into other universities, teaching similar classes. Um, so I think, and, and there are some, you know, like we offer a ton of political science 1101, right? The American government, um, which is a required class at our university by all students. So there's a ton, there's a lot of room for things like that, I think, at, at universities. But you know, even in upper division courses, this would be possible uh, by collaborating more across departments and across universities and schools um, and moving outside of, uh, you know, our, the, the type of university that you might teach at and thinking about what's going on at, um, you know, community colleges and other mm -hmm. places where there may be some really fruitful collaborations um, that, that, that we can that you could work on, so. Interesting. Maybe if I can back to one other point at this moment. One, one is that if you are thinking about submitting something to the journal, then, then please do so. Um, contact Charity, myself, or other, other editors if you're unsure about the submission. We do aim to have quite uh, timely turnarounds on initial views. Um, and secondly, if you're interested in doing reviews for the journal, then please get in touch with us because uh, that's an important element. And I think that what I would always say is that just as we are trying to serve the profession, if, if people 
um, her articles published in in journals, then they should also be prepared to be reviewers for them. And you know, it cuts both way in that sense, doesn't it? Um, but but we're here to answer any questions and also to provide advice and guidance. Terrific. Alistair, Charity, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this really important way in which people can channel their creative energy into the teaching that adds to the conversation that then goes off and, as you say, has an opportunity to make a real difference in how we think about the field and the disciplines that we're up to. So uh, thanks for coming and sharing. All right. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Teaching Curve podcast is made available in the International Studies Association Professional Resource Center under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Conference Planning Committee. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org and follow us on Twitter at teachingcurve. Special thanks to the team at ISAHQ for helping get this podcast out each month. Thank you all for joining us again on the Teaching Curve. And remember, learn something every time you teach.